Section 10 of Kazan by James Oliver Curwood. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Leonard Wilson. Chapter 10 The Days of Fire. From the night of the terrible fight with the big gray lynx on the top of the sun rock, Kazan remembered less and less vividly the old days when he had been a sledge dog and the leader of a pack. He would never quite forget them, and always there would stand out certain memories from among the rest, like fires cutting the blackness of night. But as man dates events from his birth, his marriage, his freedom from a bondage, or some foundation step in his career, so all things seemed to Kazan to begin with two tragedies which had followed one fast upon the other after the birth of Grey Wolf's pups. The first was the fight on the Sun Rock, when the big gray lynx had blinded his beautiful wolf-mate for all time, and had torn her pups into pieces. He, in turn, had killed the lynx, but gray wolf was still blind. Vengeance had not been able to give her sight. She could no longer hunt with him, as they had hunted with the wild wolf-packs out on the plain, and in the dark forests. So at the thought of that night he always snarled, and his lips curled back to reveal his inch-long fangs. The other tragedy was the going of Joan, her baby, and her husband. Something more infallible than reason told Kazan that they would not come back. Brightest of all the pictures that remained with him was that of the sunny morning when the woman and the baby he loved, and the man he endured because of them, had gone away in the canoe, and often he would go to the point and gaze longingly downstream, where he had leaped from the canoe to return to his blind mate. So Kazan's life seemed now to be made up chiefly of three things, his hatred of everything that bore the scent or mark of the lynx, his grieving for Joan and the baby, and Grey Wolf. It was natural that the strongest passion in him should be his hatred of the lynx, for not only Grey Wolf's blindness and the death of the pups, but even the loss of the woman and the baby he laid to that fatal struggle on the sun-rock. From that hour he became the deadliest enemy of the lynx tribe. Wherever he struck the scent of the big gray cat, he was turned into a snarling demon, and his hatred grew day by day as he became more completely a part of the wild. He found that Grey Wolf was more necessary to him now than she had ever been since the day she had left the wolf-pack for him. He was three-quarters dog, and the dog part of him demanded companionship. There was only Grey Wolf to give him that now. They were alone. Civilization was four hundred miles south of them. The nearest Hudson's Bay post was sixty miles to the west. Often in the days of the woman and the baby, Grey Wolf had spent her nights alone out in the forest, waiting and calling for Kazan. Now it was Kazan who was lonely and uneasy when he was away from her side. In her blindness Grey Wolf could no longer hunt with her mate, but gradually a new code of understanding grew up between them, and through her blindness they learned many things that they had not known before. By early summer Grey Wolf could travel with Kazan if he did not move too swiftly. She ran at his flank with her shoulder or muzzle touching him, 
and Kazan learned not to leap, but to trot. Very quickly he found that he must choose the easiest trails for Grey Wolf's feet. When they came to a space to be bridged by a leap, he would muzzle Grey Wolf and whine, and she would stand with ears alert, listening. Then Kazan would take the leap, and she understood the distance she had to cover. She always overleaped, which was a good fault. In another way, and one that was destined to serve them many times in the future, she became of greater help than ever to Kazan. Scent and hearing entirely took the place of sight. Each day developed these senses more and more, and at the same time there developed between them the dumb language whereby she could impress upon Kazan what she had discovered by scent or sound. It became a curious habit of Kazan's always to look at Grey Wolf when they stopped to listen or to scent the air. After the fight on the Sun Rock, Kazan had taken his blind mate to a thick clump of spruce and balsam in the river bottom, where they remained until early summer. Every day for weeks Kazan went to the cabin where Joan and the baby, and the man, had been. For a long time he went hopefully, looking each day or night to see some sign of life there. But the door was never open. The boards and saplings at the windows always remained. Never a spiral of smoke rose from the clay chimney. Grass and vines began to grow in the path, and fainter and fainter grew that scent which Kazan could still find about it, the scent of man, of the woman, the baby. One day he found a little baby moccasin under one of the closed windows. It was old and worn out, and blackened by snow and rain. But he lay down beside it, and remained there for a long time, while the baby Joan, a thousand miles away, was playing with the strange toys of civilization. Then he returned to Grey Wolf among the spruce and balsam. The cabin was the one place to which Grey Wolf would not follow him. At all other times she was at his side. Now that she had become accustomed to blindness, she even accompanied him on his hunts, until he struck game and began the chase. Then she would wait for him. Kazan usually hunted the big snowshoe rabbits, but one night he ran down and killed a young doe. The kill was too heavy to drag to Grey Wolf, so he returned to where she was waiting for him, and guided her to the feast. In many ways they became more and more inseparable as the summer lengthened, until at last, through all the wilderness, their footprints were always two by two, and never one by one. Then came the great fire. Grey Wolf caught the scent of it when it was still two days to the west. The sun that night went down in a lurid cloud. The moon, drifting into the west, became blood-red. When it dropped behind the wilderness in this manner, the Indians called it the Bleeding Moon, and the air was filled with omens. All the next day Grey Wolf was nervous, and toward noon Kazan caught in the air the warning that she had sensed many hours ahead of him. Steadily the scent grew stronger and by the middle of the afternoon the sun was veiled by a film of smoke. The flight of the wild things from the triangle of forest between the junctions of the Pipestone and Cree rivers 
would have begun then. But the wind shifted. It was a fatal shift. The fire was raging from the west and south. Then the wind swept straight eastward, carrying the smoke with it, and during this breathing spell all the wild creatures in the triangle between the two rivers waited. This gave the fire time to sweep completely across the base of the forest triangle, cutting off the last trails of escape. Then the wind shifted again, and the fire swept north. The head of the triangle became a death-trap. All through the night the southern sky was filled with a lurid glow, and by morning the heat and smoke and ash were suffocating. Panic-stricken, Kazan searched vainly for a means of escape. Not for an instant did he leave Grey Wolf. It would have been easy for him to swim across either of the two streams, for he was three-quarters dog. But at the first touch of water on her paws, Grey Wolf drew back, shrinking. Like all her breed, she would face fire and death before water. Kazan urged. A dozen times he leaped in and swam out into the stream. But Grey Wolf would come no farther than she could wade. They could hear the distant murmuring roar of the fire now. Ahead of it came the wild things, moose, caribou, and deer, plunged into the water of the streams, and swam to the safety of the opposite side. Out upon a white finger of sand lumbered a big black bear with two cubs, and even the cubs took to the water and swam across easily. Kazan watched them and whined to Grey Wolf. And then, out upon that white finger of sand, came other things that dreaded the water as Grey Wolf dreaded it. A big fat porcupine, a sleek little marten, a fisher-cat that sniffed the air and wailed like a child. Those things that could not or would not swim outnumbered the others three to one. Hundreds of little ermine scurried along the shore like rats, their squeaking little voices sounding incessantly. Foxes ran swiftly along the banks, seeking a tree or a windfall that might bridge the water for them. The lynx snarled and faced the fire, and Grey Wolf's own tribe, the wolves, dared take no deeper step than she. Dripping and panting and half-choked by heat and smoke, Kazan came to Grey Wolf's side. There was but one refuge left near them, and that was the sandbar. It reached out for fifty feet into the stream. Quickly he led his blind mate toward it. As they came through the low bush to the river-bed, something stopped them both. To their nostrils had come the scent of a deadlier enemy than fire. A lynx had taken possession of the sandbar, and was crouching at the end of it. Three porcupines had dragged themselves into the edge of the water, and lay there like balls, their quills alert and quivering. A fisher-cat was snarling at the lynx, and the lynx, with ears laid back, watched Kazan and Grey Wolf as they began the invasion of the sandbar. Faithful Grey Wolf was full of fight, and she sprang shoulder to shoulder with Kazan, her fangs bared. With an angry snap, Kazan drove her back, and she stood quivering and whining while he advanced. Light-footed, his pointed ears forward, no menace or threat in his attitude, he advanced. It was the deadly advance of the husky trained in battle, skilled in the art of killing. 
A man from civilization would have said that the dog was approaching the lynx with friendly intentions. But the lynx understood. It was the old feud of many generations, made deadlier now by Kazan's memory of that night at the top of the Sun Rock. Instinct told the fisher-cat what was coming, and it crouched low and flat. The porcupines, scolding like little children at the presence of enemies and the thickening clouds of smoke, thrust their quills still more erect. The lynx lay on its belly like a cat, its hindquarters twitching, and gathered for the spring. Kazan's feet seemed scarcely to touch the sand as he circled lightly around it. The lynx pivoted as he circled, and then it shot in a round, snarling ball over the eight feet of space that separated them. Kazan did not leap aside. He made no effort to escape the attack, but met it fairly with the full force of his shoulders, as sledge-dog meets sledge-dog. He was ten pounds heavier than the lynx, and for a moment the big loose-jointed cat with its twenty knife-like claws was thrown on its side. Like a flash Kazan took advantage of the moment and drove for the back of the cat's neck. In that same moment blind Grey Wolf leaped in with a snarling cry, and fighting under Kazan's belly she fastened her jaws in one of the cat's hind legs. The bone snapped. The lynx, twice outweighed, leaped backward, dragging both Kazan and Grey Wolf. It fell back down on one of the porcupines, and a hundred quills drove into its body. Another leap, and it was free, fleeing into the face of the smoke. Kazan did not pursue. Grey Wolf came to his side and licked his neck, where fresh blood was crimsoning his tawny hide. The fisher-cat lay as if dead, watching them with fierce little black eyes. The porcupines continued to chatter, as if begging for mercy and then a thick, black, suffocating pall of smoke drove low over the sandbar, and with it came air that was furnace-hot. At the uttermost end of the sandbar Kazan and Grey Wolf rolled themselves into balls and thrust their heads under their bodies. The fire was very near now. The roar of it was like that of a great cataract, with now and then a louder crash of falling trees. The air was filled with ash and burning sparks, and twice Kazan drew forth his head to snap at blazing embers that fell upon and seared him like hot irons. Close along the edge of the stream grew thick green bush, and when the fire reached this it burned more slowly, and the heat grew less. Still it was a long time before Kazan and Grey Wolf could draw forth their heads and breathe more freely. Then they found that the finger of sand, reaching out into the river, had saved them. Everywhere in that triangle between the two rivers the world had turned black and was hot underfoot. The smoke cleared away. The wind changed again and swung down cool and fresh from the west and north. The fisher-cat was the first to move cautiously back to the forest that had been but the porcupines were still rolled into balls when Grey Wolf and Kazan left the sandbar. They began to travel upstream, and before night came their feet were sore from hot ash and burning embers. The moon was strange and foreboding that night, like a spatter of blood in the sky, and through the long silent hours there was not even the hoot of an owl to give a sign that life still existed 
where yesterday had been a paradise of wild things. Kazan knew that there was nothing to hunt, and they continued to travel all that night. With dawn they struck a narrow swamp along the edge of the stream. Here beavers had built a dam, and they were able to cross over into the green country on the opposite side. For another day and another night they traveled westward, and this brought them into the thick country of swamp and timber along the water found. And as Kazan and Grey Wolf came from the west, there came from the Hudson's Bay post to the east a slim, dark-faced French half-breed by the name of Henri Loti, the most famous lynx hunter in all the Hudson's Bay country. He was prospecting for signs, and he found them in abundance along the water-found. It was a game paradise, and the snowshoe rabbit abounded in thousands. As a consequence, the lynxes were thick, and Henri built his trapping shack, and then returned to the post to wait until the first snows fell, when he would come back with his team, supplies, and traps. And up from the south, at this same time, there was slowly working his way by canoe and trail, a young university zoologist who was gathering material for a book on the reasoning of the wild. His name was Paul Wayman, and he had made arrangements to spend a part of the winter with Henri Loti, the half-breed. He brought with him plenty of paper, a camera, and the photograph of a girl. His only weapon was a pocket-knife. And meanwhile Kazan and Grey Wolf found the home they were seeking in a thick swamp five or six miles from the cabin that Henri Loti had built. End of chapter 10 of Kazan by James Oliver Curwood Recording by Leonard Wilson of Springfield, Ohio